are alive to shine. I'm Beth. And I'm Kate. And this is the Shine Podcast, where we meet lots of different people and hear about the ways that they light up the world. And here's why we're doing this. We've been changed and affected by people who shine with the love of Jesus. And the world needs people like that, and like you, right now. So be encouraged. And let your light shine. shine. I'll start with New York. I was born in New York, and my um, parents were having a lot of difficulties. So my mother sent me to live with my aunt for a year. That was at the age of, like, four. I went from New York to New Jersey and lived with my aunt for a year. And then after a year, she came and got me. And then I met my new stepdad. While she was picking you up. Yeah. I didn't take kindly to that, I think, she said. But we, we became a family and then grew up in New Jersey and... You and your brother, was uh-huh. he older or younger? My brother's younger. So it was the two, did he go to your aunt's too? No. Okay, but I, your mom had the two of you. Yes. And then when she showed up with the stepdad, there was a sister. No, the, my sister came later. She was born Oh, in so the she was later. your mom's? My mom and my stepdad's okay. child. Okay, okay. Yeah, which I never really, I never looked at her any differently than my sister. She mm-hmm. grew up with us and she was my sister. It's odd to think of it that way even today. <laughs> We moved to New Jersey. We were together. We lived in a Spanish neighborhood, 90% Hispanic neighborhood. You know, living in the Spanish neighborhood, you kind of, you're okay, even though, like, there's danger and stuff around you and things happen. You could hear shooting at night, things like that. It's odd because now if I hear it here, I don't think of it as a dangerous thing. But when I heard it over there, it was scary. People are doing something wrong. So growing up was tough because my mother was terrified of, of what would happen to us. Of somebody would steal us or, you know, we would get in with the wrong crowd or something like that. So she she always kept us in the house. And we lived in a row home. So the row home is everybody has their little 10 by 10 concrete thing in the backyard. And the back of our building is the back of the other blocks building. So we have blocks of concrete on either side and a fence dividing it it felt like jail to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) growing up and my cousins i had cousins that lived right around the corner all from my stepdad's side but still they would play stickball in the street and would invite me to go out and my mom was like always no 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 i grew up with a lot of pent-up energy energy yeah yeah and i i guess i dealt with it okay somehow my brother kind of didn't so he he would go out and do crazy things if he got a chance to go out My mother never drove. My mother walked everywhere. We either got on the bus. When we lived in New York, it was the train, the bus. When we moved to New Jersey, it was mostly the bus. It was a limiting life. There was a lot of nothing to do Hmm. all the time. When we first moved there, we were in South Camden, which was, it's all, almost all Latino. And some blacks and, and no white. Later on, we moved from there to my dad's sister's house, and that was in a black section. That was for sixth grade. Everything just went wrong. We lived in a black neighborhood, and I looked more like a little white kid. You know, I had straight hair. My brother has curly hair. You know, we were always in the house. I was, like, really white, you know, and... (laughs) And I would go to school, and it was just, I found myself taking alleyways to avoid people and try to get to school without having some kind of conflict with somebody. Because you'd walk through the neighborhood, and somebody would say, hey, white boy, what are you doing here, white boy? You know where you're at, white boy? And either that, I've had stuff where I walk to school, you know, all of a sudden I, I got hit from behind, and I'm picking myself up off the floor, and, you know, no words were said, nothing, just and every time that I got into something with somebody, it was two or three guys. It was two or three kids. And I was always a little tall for my age. So somehow I would get the high schooler fights, you know, with high schooler, older middle school kids. I remember I tell people, sometimes you, you just stood there and fought one-on-one. Sometimes you run. And most of the time or all the time, you try to avoid people. You try and avoid crowds. You see a crowd on the corner, you start crossing the street a little early. And if they move and cross the street, then you cross the street again, hoping that it's not a thing where they're following you. In sixth grade, I had fights all the time. I, I went from a pretty much an A student to like a, a B, C, even D student. It was tough. I got into one fight. The guy just started picking on me for no reason. And 
because of my color, basically. So it was like reverse racism. And I remember I'm fighting the one guy and the other guy hits me from the side. And I got so upset because it was always two on one, three on one. It, one time it was, you just get to a point where you're, you're either going to crawl into a ball and just get hit or you're going to fight back. I had gotten to the point where I was just angry. <laughs> In the one fight when the guy hit me from the side, I picked up a piece of bottle, the bottom of a bottle, and I flung it at the guy and just hit him in the head with it and just blood's gushing out of his head. And I just kept fighting and I grabbed the guy that was in front of me and I just pinned him and just kept punching him and punching him and people broke us up. I just had a lot of fight situations. Just not good. And so at that point, your mom yeah, my kind mom of decided to... By the end of that school year, I was having panic attacks. I was shaking. I would get up in the morning and I'd have some, like my stomach would be doing flips. The one time I got, I got outside and I just kind of keeled over and held on to a telephone pole because I was shaking and crying. And, mm. and I went back home and I said, Mom, I don't want to go to school anymore. I don't want to go to school anymore. And of course, I had to go to school the next day. But I started getting more angry and I started thinking, I got to do something big to somebody to kind of earn my respect here. And, and my brother was kind of in the same situation, but he made friends with people. He made friends with all the bad guys. And I didn't want to make friends with the bad guys. I just wanted people to leave me alone. So the one day after that panic situation... I just started carrying around a knife in my bag. I remember I put a, I cut a thick broomstick down. I put a nail through it. I put a, a little bike grip on it on the one end and taped it up and put it in my book bag. And I, and I had nunchucks at some, at some point in time. I was just thinking, I'm going to make an example out of somebody. And I kept thinking, I remember the whole time I was thinking, if you take it on, you use it, don't hit them in the head. You don't want to go to jail. When you grow up in Camden, you... You know, it's not really difficult for a good kid to really be just defending himself and maybe end up in jail just because you're to the point where you just want to defend yourself. And I kept thinking one wrong hit and I might go to jail, so I got to be mm. careful. But my mom, that panic attack was the thing that really kind of started her to look for some help. There was a middle school more towards the Spanish section. It was a Catholic school. We couldn't really afford to go there, and I don't know, to this day, I don't know how my mom got me in there, but she spoke to the priest, and somehow they were able to get me in there. I don't know how she paid tuition for those two years that I was there, but I went there from 7th and 8th grade, and even there, things happened, like, not like in my neighborhood, but even there, we had a gang that came from a different section of town. I remember my friend saying, yo, and he opened up his book bag and he had a gun in there and he was like, you know, I got you. Stay near me if something happens when we get out. It was just crazy. Did you see the movie? Straight out of Compton? Oh, yeah. Is that a, a good representation yeah, of your life? But we didn't have, we had like two or three gangs in Camden, but it was we were really segregated. There's the black section, there's the white, or the black section, the Hispanic section. The blacks that lived in the Hispanic section were probably pretty cool. So it was more like territorial things. It wasn't really like you cross into another gang's territory or anything like that. And if you're darker Hispanic, you had less problems. If you're whiter Hispanic, you had more problems. And if, if you didn't fight, then you were going to have more problems. So I, I had a fight in the cafeteria once. I was just sitting there eating my lunch, and this guy tipped my milk over and tipped it and went ran down my shirt. Those are make-or-break moments. You either sit there and let that happen, and then it'll happen again, or you go do something about it. You know, I stood up and chased him. He went around the last desk around the corner, and I just walked across the, the whole table, and I just jumped on him from the table. And I remember we landed on the floor. We're, like, slugging it out, and we had the biggest security guards you ever saw in your life in that school. And, and I remember being picked up right off the ground and <laughs> right into the air. And then the panic set in because now I know I'm going to get at least detention out of this. So now everybody's on the street after detention because everybody has a chance to go home and hang out now. Like when the school bell rang, I was out the door and on my way because if you waited too long, everybody kind of settles into their neighborhoods in front of their streets and on the, in the alleyways. And, and then you have a lot more you have to navigate around. Yeah. So that night was terrible. 
I got out late and I didn't tell my parents. They found out when I got home that I got in trouble. But And since my mom doesn't drive, all she could do is wait for me to get home. My dad's not home from work yet. And I'm taking extra time getting home because now I'm trying to take streets like big giant highways. I remember going on the highway just to avoid the town. The highway's bad, too, because the highway has, I don't know, I hate to say this, but the highway has hookers all down the, the boulevard. So there's pimps and people picking them up and dropping them off. And it was a tough place. It was tough times. By the time I was in high school, I had, I don't want to paint it wrong. I don't want to say I had anger issues like I was this angry kid, but I had no tolerance. If you bumped into me, then we'd probably get into it right there. People do stupid things and crazy things. I think all of... I mean, if you want stories... No, because, well, number one, I don't think we get a lot of these types of stories. And so I think that in sharing something that's different, it teaches a new lesson. You know, we have a lot of stories, and they're all good and very meaningful. But this teaches a new lesson in that I think sometimes we put people in boxes when we see they've been in jail... These are people with lives and stories and culture and families. I mean, even to look at you, it's really easy to box immediately. Label that. Tell you the insight that I have for inner city is there's a lot of good people. There's a lot of good people just trying to survive. You, at different points in time, you're going to be confronted with different things you have to do. You don't know when you might do the wrong thing to defend yourself and end up in jail yourself. Being a good person, trying to avoid all the bad things. I don't know, 80% of the kids I went to high school with that were my crowd right around me, 80% of them were used marijuana, cocaine, all kinds of stuff. It kind of veers you off and you kind of start going down a path where you don't want to be. It's a lot of opportunities for bad decisions or bad things to happen. But in those situations, sometimes Mm -hmm. they can't be helped. And I think that people who don't have those backgrounds and haven't lived that don't necessarily see it that way. There's a side of people that are like, you're deserving of whatever's coming to you right, because right. You, you made those decisions and, oh my gosh, if you only knew everything behind yeah. and everything around. and Yeah, I get it. I mean, it, I always thought if people only knew the struggles that some kids have to try and, and all they're doing is try to keep out of trouble, try to avoid walking through a neighborhood and getting in trouble. And, and the rage you start feeling as you're growing through this, growing up through this, you're just so sick and tired you know, months and Mm -hmm. weeks and years or whatever. You just don't know what you're going to run into that just can shift your life in a whole different direction. Welcome, Shine Podcast listeners. It's Berta. Oh, welcome. It's Catalina. And we are here by the grace of God. Yeah. It's a miracle. Uh Uh-huh. Straight out of Camden, all the way to Columbian, Ohio. (laughs) We are honored and blessed to be with William Acevedo today. Welcome, William. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. Yes, great. Glad to be here. All right. More affectionately called Bill by his family. And it's so weird because everyone calls you Bill, but I've only ever known you as William. So when people call you Bill, it's weird. Yeah, Millie has introduced me to as William. So everybody calls me William here. Back at home. Does that make you sad? It's Billy, Will, Willie, more Bill than anything else. But when when we call you William, are you thinking? No, I like. I it. wish I, they would just call me Bill. No, no, <laughs> I, I take either one. Just as William was born in Brooklyn, New York. He was raised in a Puerto Rican family by his mom, his stepdad. He has a brother and a sister, and they moved to Camden, New Jersey, when he was four years old. He was raised there, went to school there until when did you move to Mount Laurel? I moved there when I was twenty-two. He spent a short stint in. Mount Laurel, New Jersey, and then got married when he was 23. His wife and two children moved to Salem, Ohio in the year 2000. He and his wife separated after 15 years of marriage. His wife and kids moved to Medina, Ohio. He met his current wife, Millie, on a mission trip around the year 2007. We have found out on the Shine podcast that our guys don't really know their dates, so (laughs) don't fact check us. 
<laughs> if you want fact checks, you talk to the wives. Yes. Megan, exactly. Millie, yes. dates. He and Millie got married in 2013. She came to the United States from Guatemala with her two sons, who were 14 and 17 at the time. And they built a family together, moved to Columbiana around the same time. Millie and William were doing ministry in the Latino community, came to the upper room about the same time met Pastor Chuck and got involved with what is currently our Latino ministry in Salem, Ohio. William went to a vocational school and a trade school. He became an auto mechanic. He's worked for Firestone and Ford. He spent 19 years as a technician at Hillrom and in a God-made move, started his own business and has been running his own business for 15 years. He loves adventure, although he works too much. But if he wasn't working, which he is, he would be enjoying his time shooting, horseback riding, hiking, biking, anything adventurous. If any of you are out there and are up for a little adventure, if you can convince William to stop working long enough, he would enjoy some activity. Welcome, William. We're so glad to have you on today. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Glad to be here. We're in the podcast studio. It's lightning and thundering. We've already lost power. Once. Here we go. (laughs) Stress level for like. (laughs) Can I add something to my um, activities that I would love? I used to uh, dive. I loved scuba diving. Did that for like two years. And then when the kids were born, I stopped because I figured I didn't want to risk my life like that. But I used to go out with a friend. We used to rent all our equipment and we'd we'd charter a boat and we'd go out to wrecks and or to uh, quarries where they they sink planes or they sink buses and things like that. I loved it. We used to do night dives and all kinds of scary things yeah no but thank you he's Ooh. also a night scuba diving? diver no <laughs> yeah night dives are scary because when you go down unless you're looking at your equipment you have no sense of if you're upside right. down what's sideways up or down? what's up what's down yeah until you move up or down you don't know what's up and down no nope. unless you look at your equipment <laughs> so all that danger is exciting so if you're seeking a thrill, you want to go How's night, feel about all night diving. Um, see, these are the things that would be tough because I would like to do all these adventures. Because she things wants and, you to live. Yeah, and Millie just wants to walk on the beach or yeah. something. <laughs> but I mean, if you went night diving mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. would she be like, oh, yeah, feel free. You know, let's jump in. I don't I don't think she would. Okay. Uh, it's only one way to find out. Yeah. <laughs> I just think you're going to have to interview her. Do we have a date for her? She's next week. Oh, oh. Wonderful. I'll ask her. So tell us, William. Yes. Who or what turned your light on? So I met a pastor, Jack Austin. He was the one who kind of, I visited First Christian Church. He came around to visit me at the house. Coming from a Catholic background, I never had a priest come to my house, obviously. So you go to the priest, you know, have priests come to your house. Well, Pastor Jack Austin came to the house, and I thought, wow, this is kind of different. And he sat down, and he was just the kindest, most loving, gentle person I had ever met. I had, in my childhood, I'd never had, like, a a man treat me with such care. And and I was drawn to that immediately. And so when he said, hey, I'd like you to come to church, like to talk to you about some things. And and he said, what kind of free time do you have? And I said, I don't have any free time. And he says, how about, what are you doing at 6 in the morning? And I was like, 6 in the morning? (laughs) Sleeping. I said, sleeping, but I can get up a little early, you know, because I'm usually up by 6.30, 7 o'clock. And he goes, get up a little earlier, and why don't you come here on Wednesdays and Fridays? He just took me under his wing and just started talking to me about Christ and the Bible. And And this was when you were grown. Yeah. After living a rough life in Camden, New Jersey. Right. You were married with kids at the time. Right. I had felt all my life through various things that happened throughout my life that God was always nearby, that he was watching over me and that he was protecting me, definitely protecting me because I went through a lot of stuff where maybe I shouldn't even be here. To be able to find a way to connect to him was really intriguing to me. And and I was searching for that, especially because I had my kids and I wanted to be able to share with them something about Christ that was different, that wasn't what I felt was empty when, when I was going to the Catholic Church. I wanted to give them some meat, and I didn't know what that was. I remember Pastor Austin, the first thing he taught me was Acts, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Everything he told me, I just ate it up. He was a good man. He, he changed my life. 
So he introduced you to Jesus mm-hmm. because you said when you were going to a Catholic church, you didn't really have a personal relationship right. with Jesus. It was more rules and regulations. It was more rules and regulations, yep. And let me tell you, I tried the rules and regulations. I, as a child, I, I had a hard time going to sleep at night. I was just so full of energy. So I would stay up till two, three, four in the morning. My bed was right next to my window, so I would open up the window. I'd put my pillow on the windowsill, and I'd lay facing up looking at the stars. And I would be a good Catholic, you know, young man, and I would I would pray. I would do my Our Father, my Hail Mary, and then I would say prayers for the people that have not been saved yet or that are in uh, purgatory, mm-hmm. supposedly. I would say extra prayers so that God can give them to the people that are still lost in purgatory. So I, I was always trying to connect with the Lord. I just didn't know how. I just mm-hmm. thought by following the rules, it's it was the way. So And so when he introduced you to Jesus and the Bible, were you like, this is what I've been searching for my whole life? Yeah, like It was different that I didn't have to necessarily follow a rule or pray a certain way. It was different that I could just talk to him. I think growing up, because I didn't have a real strong connection to my stepfather, I really never had a father figure. You know, and he pretty much identified that right away with me, asking me questions, just talking to me. It was just different that I could just talk to somebody and be myself and not have to, you know, like I said, follow some certain rule. Or, so it's very different. How did your life change when you met Pastor Jack and Jesus? Mm. I definitely had father issues growing up. So, so it was, you know, in the beginning, I thought, although I desired to know Christ more, I was kind of looking for his angle. Mm. I was looking for, like, what did this guy want from me? I, I was used to living in a in an area where, where you have to watch out for yourself. So I, my natural thing was, like, to protect myself. I'm like, what, what is this guy? Why is he, why does he want me here every, these two days? And why? And I was eating it up, but at the same time, I was kind of, like, I wasn't, too accepting of his trying to be father-like to me. I'm still growing in that area. Not that it's hard. I know all the good that it has done for me now, but it's not natural. Experiencing a different type of church mm-hmm. and kind of faith done differently on Sundays, mm-hmm. were you able to jump into that? It was very different. One thing that I liked right away was that I felt like I got so much information out of it. Felt like the only information was in the hands of the priest, and it was only it was limited to what he told you that day, and you can go meditate on that the rest of the week. But when I went to First Christian, it was like they drew a story for you, and they explained every detail of it. And and I remember picking up the Bible in the pew, and I wasn't used to seeing the Bible in the pew. So I like I was like, wow, let me look that up. What he's talking about, and I'm looking through, and I'm like, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. We had a Bible in our house, but it was like the sacred Bible that sat on the stoop. It wasn't the right. Bible that we picked up. It was super oversized. It was pretty, but it wasn't friendly. The ones in the pews were like right there accessible. So it was different. Coming from a place of having father wounds, how was the transition viewing God as your father? Well, I still am working on that. It's still a work in progress for me. I've actually come to the Sozo, had Sozo over those type of issues. And I'll just share a little part of the Sozo. In my Sozo thing, there was a separation between me and and the Lord, and it was this wall that I could not get through. I remember trying to figure out how to let go and, like, accept father figure, that loving kind of father figure. And in the Sozo thing, like, I remember just feeling, I'm going to describe it as feeling seeing or seeing feeling, sort of like the God went over the wall and kind of, he was huge, bigger than the wall, and reached over and just kind of grabbed me like a little baby and picked me up over it and just held me. It's hard to explain it. It was more of a feeling that I got, like God was telling me that I am his son. It's something that I still struggle with. It's something that I I accept it and I love it and I feel it really strong sometimes. And sometimes maybe it's me pushing away or because I grew up without that so much. Still working on it. Do you feel like because you recognize that, that you purposefully work at that in your own life, you know, with Diego and Manolo? Yeah, I find myself checking myself to not be indifferent Mm. sometimes. I'm kind of like a rule person. 
And I can make it all about rules sometimes and not about love. So sometimes I, I'll say something or do something and I'll walk away and I'm like, check yourself. What are you doing? Did they get the point? Did they get just the rule and they don't get the love behind it? So I have to stop and say, what am I doing? I was too cold. I have to go back and tell them why and end it with a hug. And it's still hard. You know, I, I do it with Diego and Manolo and I love them. I love them. I think I would still struggle even if it was Nick and Alyssa. I would still struggle with that because it's just not something the way I grew up. So I think no matter what, it'd be a struggle. And I think it might always be a struggle for me. I don't know. Don't say that. Speak life over yourself and that. <laughs> no. I am still No, learning. that's good. I, but I, our words that we speak over mm-hmm. ourselves have power. Mm-hmm. Words I, create worlds. Yeah. And so I would just <laughs> encourage you to say... I'm not there yet, but I'm going to get it someday. Right. Even if you don't feel like that, it's always going to be a struggle. Like, don't say that. Yeah. Say, I'm going to get it. Start declaring Bible verses. But I love, too, that you're turning the tides in that that was your experience, but you're working toward that not being another generation's experience. Mm-hmm. Even as you kind of stumble through that sometimes, you're aware to be like, check yourself, go Mm -hmm. back. Did you do it with love? And I don't know if I'm doing it well sometimes, but the response I get, like Manolo hugs me. He's kissed me on the cheek. I must be doing something right because I'm getting the right responses back, you know? So like, Yes. So tell us, what lights you up? Gosh, what lights me up is sometimes I I daydream about having an orphanage. Having an orphanage, being the father of like hundreds of kids, I see myself, like in my mind, I see myself with kids, little kids, and like all of them saying, where are we going, Dad? Where are we going, Dad? You know, like questions and and just watching over them, taking care of them. I don't know. I daydream about that. Uh, That's just so fascinating to me. I don't feel like we've had a lot of guys come on and be like, you know what? Really like kids. That's I don't just know. Neat. I, when kids come to my house, kids like the kids next door, or or <laughs> like kids come. I had a cement guy that was building a wall behind my house, and he brought his two kids and the other kid. And I came home from work, and I thought, oh, something in my mind said, "Go get them French fries." And then I went, got them all French fries, and they were on this bouncy thing. Somehow, I've always had a, like a way with kids, and mm. they seem to want to play or to enjoy me. So, and going on the mission trips, there's so many kids over there that are just totally disconnected, kind of like I was when I was little. There was a kid in Salem who we helped. I think this kid was 12, and he had come through the desert. He was sent by his parents with a group that was coming in with the coyote. He had walked with them and was alone, didn't have family, was going to end up with family here. Didn't speak Spanish, spoke one of the languages. I don't know if it was Quiche, because there's three different languages that we have in Salem. So this kid came, and he got caught. They put him in with a bunch of other kids. He was there for months, and they couldn't find his family because they didn't know what language he was speaking. He finally learned enough Spanish with with the Mexican kids who were there that he was able to explain to them where he was from and where he was trying to get to. They ended up transferring him like somewhere in Pennsylvania, and then he finally ended up in Salem. This little kid didn't have any joy. He just looked like like a little man that didn't know how to play. Didn't I talked to him and I, you know, I play and I, and he just was very serious, very empty inside. And I thought like he was kind of like a little worse version of me when I was a little. It just draws me that kind of stuff. I just want to. I'm drawn to like want to help. I guess what I see in myself and some of these kids. I told Millie, would you move back and maybe we can take all our money and just start an orphanage? And she's like, I don't want to move back. <laughs> so we're still trying to figure it all out. But I don't know. I like kids. One of the tough things with me is that I, I just work so much that I don't, I don't give myself time to think about things. And when I graduated high school, I bought a house from the city. And my friends were all clubbing and doing stuff. I bought a house from the city and fixed it for the next three years. I went to work. And then came home and fixed the house in the evening and did that for three years until I finished fixing the house and then lived in it. So I've been working like all my life. When I turned 18 is when I was like, okay, I'm going to go scuba diving. And I went and signed myself up and I'm going to, I'm going to go on a cruise. And I went and got on a cruise. So I took a little bit of time before I met my first wife to kind of go do things. And I was trying to do something and then like ended once I got married. 
do Sounds that. like you're very focused and driven. And when you see something that you'd like, as far as a goal goes, you just do it. That's amazing. Yeah. I think I'm like that. When I was in Camden, it was a drive to get out of Camden. Mm-hmm. It was a drive to be anywhere but Camden. And I think those were some of the mistakes that drove me. When I met my first wife, she was white. And I never really interacted much with any white people because I grew up in Camden and everybody's black or Hispanic. And she went to college and she was, she was going to be a nurse and she had a dream and a goal and a, she was pursuing something. I had a dream and a goal too. I just didn't know what and where. And I thought, I said, man, that's a good match. Let's head somewhere. And I didn't see all the problems that I had and I didn't see all the problems she had. So we had similar things that drew us together, but there was a lot of trouble in there mm. that we were dealing trauma. with. Trauma. You were both yeah. so much filled with trauma. Yeah. yeah. We were probably together the first year, and we were already in counseling and just trying to fix things. It was just so much in there to fix. Well, sometimes you have you have two broken people. You need to fix yourself first yeah. before you can fix oh, yeah. the relationship. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, growing up, my parents were people of very few words, gonna keep quiet, behave, and it's not that they treated us bad, it's that they didn't interact with us. And I think my grandfathers and their parents were the same way with them. So it kind of trickled down to them, and then I never sat with my mom and talked about a girlfriend, life, nothing. When I was having problems, it never even occurred to me to talk to my mom about problems. Not in a million years. Just handle it. You know, just handle it on my own. I tell Millie that all the time. I felt like I stumbled through life handling things on whatever I could figure out my next move would be, where I'd get help from or what I'd do next. Or you just kind of fumble through life, Mm -hmm. making mistakes and figuring the right thing out. You know, I can identify with Zach Jones a little bit in that area because he kind of, you just figure out your next move. You just figure out... You fix it and figure it out and fix it and figure it out. And a lot of times you don't fix it. You just kind of move on to the next problem. I had the two things that helped me the most was Jack Austin, my time at First Christian Church. My time here has helped. But there was something that we went to in Texas, which was called the Road Adventure. It was the most intense experience I have ever ever had, maybe besides Sozo. But it was it's a weekend thing. They touch on every sense that you have. I think they describe it as five years worth of counseling condensed into a weekend. It's a two-day thing. It's a lot of inner healing work. It's inner healing, but it's just so intensive that when you get out, you just kind of, you know what triggers you have. You know the things you need to work on. You're empowered to be different. There's different sessions you can go to. I went to two weekends of it. It's just incredible things you see there. I appreciate your willingness to discuss it bringing up sozo or any type of counseling or therapy that you've experienced. A lot of times women are free to share that. And I feel like a lot of times, like you're saying with Zach, you know, you have these issues where you kind of stumble through this and stumble through that and you figure it out on your own. Yeah. Sometimes it's really helpful not to figure it out on your own and to to have somebody guide you and yeah, give you insight. Oh my gosh. I was I was so tired of figuring my next move out that I wanted somebody to help me. For those of you who may not know what William's talking about when he's talking about Sozo, that Sozo thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Sozo is a inner healing ministry that we have here at the Upper Room Fellowship. And Sozo is a Greek word that means saved, healed, and delivered. And we talk about often that, you know, you can be saved in an instance, but when you grow up with trauma and pain, there's not always a magic wand that just makes all of that go away. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you're saved, but Jesus wants us to be healed and delivered from past wounds and trauma. And so that's a ministry here at the Upper Room Fellowship. I love how something that you missed or you felt like you didn't have as a child and not feeling like you had a father figure, you want to make a difference and Mm -hmm. you can see yourself in a role of filling that role for kids in an orphanage or, um, you know, oftentimes I don't think Jesus causes us our pain, but he never wastes anything in the wilderness. And sometimes out of our greatest pain, there's beauty that Mm -hmm. comes from that. And we can turn that pain around and make it something beautiful by reaching out and giving back and Mm -hmm. making an impact in other people's lives. 
because we went through that. Oh, who knows what's coming for you? Oh, gosh. I know I've grown to not necessarily still not understand. You know, my, my stepdad was not, he didn't treat us bad, but he, I think they were, both my parents were both a little just indifferent to our feelings. When you ask them tough questions, they just say, I'll go sit down or go watch TV. Or There was never explanations on anything. It only, it only tells you to make it up, make up the answer. My brother went very negative, and my brother went and looked for streetways. And I went negative, too. I mean, I you know had a lot of anger issues when I was a young kid. I feel like being shut down also speaks to your value, though, too. As a child, not getting the answers or understanding is something, but being shut down or feeling mm-hmm. like you're not important enough to have this discussion or to be seen, to continually be shown indifference, mm-hmm. it speaks to your value. So that is... What are you worth? That's huge because you want value and worth. Jonathan talked on his podcast about men's ministry, how (laughs) he wants guys to be better fathers and better husbands. And it's not a skill that you're innately born with if you didn't have it modeled to you. And I think there's so many guys that have father wounds that want to do better than their parents did. But you still need tools and you need support and you need a community around you pointing you in the right direction. I want you to start an orphanage. It may never happen, so but I, may, much. I don't want to speak yeah, negative stuff. Yeah, don't say stuff. that. Say okay. it again. Rephrase that. It may happen, but if it does not happen, <laughs> I would probably support somebody who would do that, be a part of it every once in a while if I could go to a different country and do that. It doesn't have to be in a different country. My sister has some of the same desires I do. It's kind of odd hmm. that I found that out recently where she wants to help people. She wants to. She said she wants to, she wants to start a community outreach where she can house it with community outreach people that's more christian based oh and i talked to my sister once when i was when i after i met pastor jack i was kind of on fire not knowing what i was talking about or how to explain it or how to evangelize or anything like that and i would still say i'm pretty crude at it but she she was going through a tough time and i in the spanish culture like sometimes they mix in witch stuff sorcery stuff like call it brujeria she was having people appear to her and she was driving once she told me like this was the worst one she was driving and the guy appeared to her next to her in the car and she like slammed on the brake jumped out of the car in the middle of the street you know was seeing things and i my my sister linda had she would have dreams a lot when we were younger of things that were going to happen and they would come true so she had this thing that was kind of a little scary for her a little scary for all of us and I told her once, I said, Linda, you're still having stuff like that. And she goes, yeah, but people are appearing to me. And I, I said, Linda, God is not a God who is scaring you. If you have a gift like that, he would probably grant it to you to do good things, not for somebody to scare the crap, not for bad. It's got to be something for good. And I want to tell you, I want you to go find a Christian church. I want you to explain that to somebody. Explain what you're having. And I told Linda, you pray that if this is from the Lord, that he redefines it in your life for good. And that if it's not, that it goes away. Because if it's, if it's not for good, it's, it's for evil and it's not from God, it's from Satan. So she hasn't had anything since she's gone to church and became a Christian. Anyway, so that was a good thing. I, like, led my sister to Christ. I still want to talk to my mom and dad. That's probably the hardest because they're the closest. I hug my mom, and I'm like, Mom, I love you, and I kiss her on the forehead. She's like, I love you, too. You know, like, she'll (laughs) say it back now. She never did when we were small, but she'll say it back now. And I know just beyond that threshold, it's a lot to deal with, like, if I start talking to her about Christ, but I have to. But it's going to open up a lot of stuff. I don't know. All I can do is share what I know, what I feel. And you've changed her? Yeah, I have changed her. My mom is, even my dad, my dad's still, like, I'll hug him before I go, and I'll tell him I love him, and he'll be real stiff with me. <laughs> love you, too, and, you know, <laughs> you know, but he's funny, because I'll do a full-on hug, you know, put my head on his shoulder and everything, <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he's like all stiff. Okay. <laughs> he's really stiff, and he gives me that, like... The, the one-two pat on the back. Just the one-two pat, you know? Like, okay, let go. <laughs> you know, whatever way they were taught, whatever way they grew up, 
if I push beyond that and like I'm something totally different and he says to himself, like, where did he get that different way of being? Because I didn't teach him to be lovey-dovey, you know, mm-hmm. like what can he do? Reject it. He's going to have to have to deal with the lovey-dovey. Stuff. I just love that they have seen the change in you. And there's part of them that has embraced that. And yeah. they're not just embracing it, but are changing themselves, even the way they react to you because yeah. of the way that you've come in. That's amazing yeah. just in itself to change the culture of your family. Yeah. And it's still hard to see, though. It's still hard. Like, I know my dad probably enjoys that. And I know my mom does. <laughs> but they don't talk about it. I'm like, am I getting through to him? I told him I loved him like a bunch of times now. I wonder if he if it's sinking in. And I wonder if like, I wish I could be a fly on the wall, especially in my mom's house. And he, did you did he hug you like that? Yeah, did he hug you too? And, you know, I just wish I could hear all that. <laughs> yeah. And see what they think and see how deep it's going. More deep than you think. So you're letting your light shine mm-hmm. just by loving your family and showing them love that maybe you didn't receive and changing their world. Yeah. I recently went to a, a party in uh, New Jersey. It was a cousin's party. They asked for somebody to come up and pray. And that I'm not shy about. So Millie's like, get up there and pray. <laughs> and And my aunt went up. My aunt's a nun, so my aunt went up and prayed, said something, and then they asked for a special blessing. The guy must have been a Christian because for some reason they asked for a special blessing for her birthday or something like that. And I remember Millie saying, get up there and do it. And I just went and prayed, and I know everybody was freaking out because I didn't make the sign of the cross at the end. And, you know, because everybody in my family is Catholic. No, they were like, what was that? That didn't sound Catholic. (laughs) You know, it was like, got to, like, be the first one to poke them and say something else out of here, you know. I'm trying to, I just saw this quote. This is a quote by Heidi Baker. Ministry could simply be about loving the person right in front of you. I think sometimes we think it has to be big and grand Mm -hmm. and evangelical at times, but sometimes it's just simply loving the people who are right in front of you. And you are. Thank you for that example. I'm trying. And you're also letting your light shine with Millie's boys. Do they call you dad? You know, it's kind of odd because I, I told them from the beginning, I said, listen, I am not your dad. Your dad is in Guatemala. He's raised you, you know, half of your life. He's your dad, dad. I'm just another person added to the list that's here to love you. So if you don't want to call me your stepdad, then you don't have to. You can call me William. You can call me whatever you want. So I'm not like so into the title thing, but it was tough for Diego when I first came on the scene because he mm-hmm. was to accept me into the relationship was to, to realize that his father was not going to come back. That relationship was over between him and Millie. I felt so bad for him. He was hardest hit with this. Um, Manola was ready for Millie just to find somebody and start her life and find somebody she could love again. So I took Diego and I, when we were getting married, I remember I took, I said, Diego, I want to, I want you to come into your grandma's room for a second. I took them in there and, um, and I said, I'm here to be another person who loves you in your life. I'm not here to replace anybody. Your dad is your dad, and he's always going to be your dad. He's here to add to the list of people that love you. And this lady right here is going to be my my witness, and your grandfather is going to be the, the witness that because your mom loves me, you may think that your mom may take sides in maybe a discipline or something I might have with you, but you call them. They're totally out of the pictures, and you can always call them and get advice from them that's way far detached from me and Millie. If you ever feel I'm doing something wrong or I'm not treating you right, or I'm not loving you like I should, because I have, I know what it is not to be loved like you should love your kid, but I'm going to do my best to love you as much as I can and as, be as much of a father-like figure as I can. And recently he told, uh, he told Millie that he feels, he said, Mom, I feel kind of weird because I talk to my dad and I love him a lot, but Sometimes I feel like William's my dad because he's there for everything. It's I loved hearing it. And then again, when I think of my kids, I could be saying that about their stepdad. When I recently talked to Nick, I asked him, I said, Nick, you know, I, you know, I pray for you and your dad, your stepdad and your mom. 
pray for your relationships to be very close and very loving relationships. And he's like, Dad, I, we don't really get along with him. And that hurt like a dagger. Now, you would think that I wouldn't want the guy, my son, to fall in love with another dad, you know? But it's quite the opposite because he needs a dad. Like, I didn't really have that. And I feel, like, guilty that we got divorced and he got a stepdad and the stepdad and him are not close. I wish that they were close. I wish that they had a strong connection or bond, you know, that could be the father for him that stepped in place of this separation. And it's really sad. It really kills me to hear that. The last thing you want for your kids is to, for them to go through anything similar you from what you went through. The beautiful part of messes is that God is a God of love and redemption, mm-hmm. and he's the God of second chances all the time while we're here on earth. And I think that even just you connecting with Nick and reuniting with him is, you know, an opportunity for God to show that redemption and that love. Yeah. You know, he he changes ashes into beauty. That's why I try not to be bitter about, like, missing these years. Mm -hmm. He said, Dad, do you resent Mom? And I'm like, no. And and sometimes I think, did I dig deep enough and think (laughs) hard enough? You know, when you lose them, I didn't see Nick's first girlfriend. I I didn't experience his wacky voices as changing. Alyssa hit puberty, you know, like she has a boyfriend. I didn't get to see any of that. And one side of me wants to be totally ticked off the other side of me is like it's the timing isn't right now it's not right i put it in god's hands and i thought the lord's going to have the timing he's going to set the timing for my kids to come back to me and nick has started that but he's he's still on a on a on a quicker path for us to have a relationship i think Alyssa is going to be it's going to be years before that happens. But all that to say, it's just in God's hands. I, I just keep it in God's hands and I just pray for them all the time. And I ask the Lord always to have somebody intercede in their lives and Christ to them. Did you want to add any other way you're letting your light shine? I mean, we, we do it on Sundays through the Guatemalan church that we have. You know, I, with Manuel there and he does an incredible, incredible job. Just not on Sundays, but throughout the week. He is just in the trenches with people. And I worry about the church missing him. To answer your question, I've been telling Millie, like, Millie, we're going to have to jump back into this and do as much as we can do. And I know we're busy already, but, but there's people out there hurting. There's people out there with all kinds of problems. We can't just do a Sunday. We have to, like, be available for them during the week. So, so I'm thinking that when Manuel leaves, I'm going to tell him to, if there's somebody hurting during the week or whatever, just call me. And I'll just go out and help wherever I can. I'm thinking ministry is going to be super exciting. Adventurous. Adventurous. <laughs> and I'm all about adventure, so. Amen. Go, <laughs> oh, God bless you. It's exciting working with people who are pre-believers. You know, it's exciting working with people who you can show love and light to. It can be, I don't want to say difficult, but... <laughs> a challenging opportunity. Yes, it oh, is. that's a, a challenging opportunity. It is you guys are amazing, you and Millie. And so whoever gets to be ministered by you guys, they'll be blessed. And eventually, like, I would love to, like, just leave work alone and do that. Start your orphanage. Yeah, start my <clears> orphanage. <throat> that would be awesome. That would be awesome. I don't know if I... Ooh, I can't speak negative. Right? <laughs> oh, you're you doing good. You're even so catching well. it. I love it. <laughs> I was going to say... Reframe I it. I hope the Lord gives me enough life that I can see that someday. So That's good. If not, I'll... Maybe I'll help somebody start it. I'll watch from heaven. (laughs) How old do you think you are? I'm 54. Oh, my gosh. I'm 54. I'm going to be 55 next year. I can get my ARP card. You get that when you're 50. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Okay. You probably have it sitting on your dresser. (laughs) What the heck? I'm going to ask for my discount at the restaurant. I'm like, senior citizen. You've been having free cups coffee for the last four years. (laughs) What in the world? Well, we know what you're doing tomorrow. Fill out that form. Ten percent off on our meal. Yeah. Anyway, please dream at all times, in all ages. That's all.
Okay. It'd be great. Like It'd be great. Well, William, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and being so vulnerable about yeah. the brokenness and the pain and the trauma that you've experienced in your life. And I think it's amazing. I think sometimes when people come from brokenness and trauma and pain, that's all they can see, and they don't see something on the other end of it. But I love that you are, you're letting your light shine through all of that that you went through, and that, you know, you're a role model to men that have had pain and brokenness and fatherlessness, and you are role modeling how to get out of that and how to be different and how to give back and give to people what you didn't receive when you were younger. And I think that's, that's a beautiful picture. And I think that's God. God's love is shining all over you. And mm. you're giving that back to the community, the work that you and Millie do in the Latino community and reaching out to them and being a loving stepdad to Millie's kids who have also experienced pain and trauma. Mm. So it's a really beautiful picture. And if you're out there listening, and you feel like there's no hope and everything is hard, take this story to heart, William's testimony that even though there's pain and heartache, God meets you where you are, and he never wastes anything in the wilderness. And you can come out on the other side, even though you're not perfect, and none of us are, but you can come out on the other side and experience God's grace and God's love and accept his fatherhood, and then give that back to other people. And so thanks for sharing that. That's beautiful. I mean, part you look of your story. over your life and how faithful has God been? Oh, yeah. oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, just what a testimony of faithfulness. So just yes to all those things. It's beautiful. Thank you. God's faithfulness is all over you. Thank you. And if, if anybody out there wants to ever have any, if you need somebody to talk to, man, just hit me up. Call me. Eight six seven five three zero oh, nine. Yeah, eight six seven five three zero oh, nine. Oh my gosh, I did not catch that. I'm like, what? You know his number? Oh my gosh, get me out of here. The eighties. I don't believe she's a youngin. She doesn't know what that number means right now. Make sure you tune in next week for another special guest. Bye. Bye.